Well, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Michael Martin with my my partner, Mike Sauter here. How's it going, Mike? Hello, hello. It's uh, another week, another exciting guest, another exciting and fun topic outside the box. Yeah, that's right. And I have to issue another retraction <laughs> like I did a few weeks ago. Last week, I mentioned uh, a biodynamic beekeeper, but I gave the wrong name. I was thinking I, I was crossing my signals. I, I really had in mind Heidi Herman. So okay. in, who in did fact, you mention? I mentioned Ruta Hollum. I don't even think she keeps bees, but she's an anthroposophist. Okay. But, uh, but Heidi is the beekeeper they talk to in The Challenge of Rudolf Steiner. Okay. And she's the one who uses kind of a modified skep for a hive. Yeah, really I bet, brilliant. I bet this brilliant. other person had books flying off the shelves last week after your mention. I, I, yeah. <laughs> why, why, why are people bugging me about beekeeping all of a sudden? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, that's enough of that, right? Keeping it real. So, um, but today we are going to talk to my friend, Arthur Verse Lewis, which it gives me great pleasure <clears throat> to interview Arthur, because uh, in so many ways, Arthur was way ahead of me on this path through sophiology, esoteric Christianity. Um, I've known about his work for at least 30 years, at least 30 years. And uh, so I'm really thrilled. And we met a few years ago. I, I went to Michigan State where Arthur te- and gave, a, gave a, a talk and that we had dinner together, which was very nice. And like I mean, it's kind of like the, the ideal sophiological uh, dual career. Arthur is also a farmer and grew up on a family farm on the west side of Michigan. Uh, so, so we had all kinds of things in common. So we could, we could turn this into a 10-hour series, but we'll try to confine it to an hour and 15 minutes or so. So welcome, Arthur. Well, thank you. I'm glad you're I here. I appreciate, appreciate the invitation. Now, Arthur is one prolific author. You bet. Uh, Oh and uh, his most recent book is Conversation in, Ap- in Apocalyptic Times. And who's your co-author with that one? Robert Foss. Okay, I don't know him, but uh, and I haven't read this book yet, but he's also the author of Platonic Mysticism, Magic and Mysticism, which is a fantastic book. Uh, the New Inquisitors, uh, which is, you know, touches on all the things we're going to talk about, kind of radical religion and its position and relationship to totalitarianism, which is another one of Arthur's uh, primary interests. Um, in fact, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, I was giving, teaching a course on something, camera it was, but I, in, the, in the course of it, I, I bumped into this, uh, this video that someone had put together about mass, mass hysteria and formation. And lo and behold, there's a there's a quote from Arthur in there. And I, well, I remember showing it to the students and I hadn't watched that far into the video. I said, wait a minute, I know that guy. Uh, and I also, in fact, you, you look on Arthur's website, with his, which is ArthurVersLewis.com, uh, and, and his list of books, and there's a ton of books up there. And it's not all of his books, because I know at least two that I have, have and have read are not listed Uh one is Shakespeare the Magus is not on there, Arthur. Is that right? Could be. I'm not sure. <laughs> and your memoir, what's the, I can't remember the title of your memoir. Uh, Island, Far- Island Farm, yeah. Oh, that, that is on there. Oh, that is on yeah. there. Yeah. 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 Uh, but the book that brought uh, Arthur onto my attention was this one right here, Theosophia. I see it. Which came out in 94? 94. And... Uh, Phenomenal book, well researched, um, and this is probably the book that, well, it's definitely the book that got me interested in the Philadelphian Society. Uh, and John Portage and Jane Led, who later I ended up writing a chapter in my dissertation on. Um, and and so you know, for this these thirty years, I've been kind of treading this path with Arthur Verse Lewis as a sometimes visible, sometimes invisible companion. So Arthur. I'd like to ask, just to start off our, our discussion, what drew you into this realm of study so long ago? Well, I'm drawn to things that are um, understudied, that are outside the uh, usual path. And I had read you know, and knew about the existence of Sufism, for example, within Islam. And so uh, having grown up in a Christian uh, household, you know, I I knew or thought there must be something similar in Christianity to Sufism. What the heck was it? 
And, you know, so that's really where that uh, quest started to, you know, to explore. And, you know, I have to say, and I mentioned this story, I tell this story in the book I did with Robert Foss, who's a clinical psychologist. Uh, when I was a teenager in the family church, uh, there was a, a minister who did a summer sermon. And in that sermon, he, he was normally a youth minister, but he, he divulged his own mystical experience in that summer sermon and pointed to Meister Eckhart. And, of course, I found that quite interesting. However, uh, internal to the church, he was never allowed to preach. He, he was only a continued uh, on the proviso that he never preached again and never, <laughs> and, and never, you know, he, as long as he never set foot near the pulpit, uh, he could still maintain One his job. One reference to Meister Eckhart, huh? Or was it, was it the reference to Eckhart or was, what, what, was it the quote itself? It was his own experience, I think. Oh. I okay, think yeah. that's what okay. did it. And, you know, no. that, that, <laughs> we you know, don't that, do that, here. that, that memory <laughs> stuck with me, you know, yeah. it stayed with William Blake me. said, William Blake said, uh, religion is that thing that defends us from having a religious experience. You know, there is, there is truth to that. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, the, uh, that particular, uh, experience, you know, kind of points towards something, but it's a quest and it's a, it's a continuing, uh, continuing quest and exploration. There are always new things and deeper, um, deeper uh, realms to uh, enter. And so that's, you know, it's, it's not that you just start and you find something and then you're done, as you right. well know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I, my own trajectory is very similar to yours. And going to Catholic school, like I'm thinking, well, there's got to be more than this. What, and then we'd talk about you know, whatever we were talking that we had, there was a big emphasis on, on catechetical issues, but not on experiences of God. Yeah. Let me, let me you describe know, how I came I across Arthur's work too, you know, which was, um, I think I was on a Charles Williams kick, you know, and um, Charles Williams in his Descent of the Dove mentioned, you know, correct me, Arthur, for the, the pronunciation, the subinducti, or, um, but early Christian experiments, you know, even with obviously the sexuality and so forth, you know, prior to kind of the rigidification of everything. And so um, your name must've been referenced in something I was reading. So I got the book again, talk about sensational titles, Western sexual mysticism. Um, and uh, again, it's very sober. It's an excellent book. I've had it on my shelf for like 12 years. And, and one time, and this almost, I think it kind of defines Michael a little bit by a about why Arthur is a perfect guest for us. And B, what we're doing with this podcast is uh, um, shortly after I was reading that book, I had lunch with a dear friend of mine, Bill Kaufman, who's kind of a very well-recognizable name and localism and things like that. And uh, I had mentioned Arthur's name and he goes, oh yeah, I know him, or maybe you've met, or he knew of his work. But Bill um, knew Arthur's name through you know, water conservation issues. And as, as Michael mentioned, Arthur's a farmer. And this kind of, I don't want to say a blend of the prosaic and the far out, because it's much more than that. You know, there's there's something that these things are not opposed, obviously not opposed to one another, but it's a, it's a yin and a yang, right? That the more you, I think the more you're a spiritual quester, the more you find yourself doing those those everyday, ordinary, sacramental things, you know? I don't know, does that resonate with you, Arthur? Well, I what I would say is that um, all of these different things are are integrated, and that includes... You know, both pagan and Christian. Um, I, you know, I don't, and that also includes the Earth mysteries. Um, I think all of these things are interrelated, and uh, part of what's happened in modernity. And Michael has has uh, you know explored this too. Is the disintegration of so many different aspects of human life, human relationship to the cosmos. Um, and there are a lot of different ways we can talk about that, but fundamentally, we're living in a society that's that's deeply disintegrated. And what we're talking about here is reintegration, right? So, yeah. so that, that happens in different spheres. Re regeneration, reintegration, regeneration mm -hmm. in different spheres, right? Of course, exactly. And that's yeah, that's what we're we're definitely interested in. That. Um, so, Arthur, I'd like to ask. Um, now, before we, before we, because it's going to move toward politics a little bit. But before we get there, <clears throat> um, 
Um, and I, you kind of just already started introducing it there. How would you um, characterize, I hate the word define, but how would you characterize a kind of uh, sociology or a sociological disposition, you know, or coming out of a theosophical like, like Burma? How would you characterize that and your, your, your relationship to that? Well, the Sophianic, there are different ways to answer that question because one of those is, is uh, directly connected to the theosophical tradition. And there, um, you know, I've been, uh, I felt a connection to that as soon as I discovered it existed. I felt it was uh, very familiar. And so within that, the, the Sophianic uh, aspect is extremely important. And there it is divine wisdom manifested in this tradition. So there's a, you could call the tradition a kind of current. It's a current and you connect to that current and central to that is the, re the revelatory figure of Sophia. Now, so that's one answer. Um, the second is that there are people who argue, and Chris Bamford was one of them, uh, that there's a kind of Sophianic, a broader way to understand the Sophianic dimensions of reality, you could say, I, I guess. Um, but seeing the world more broadly in terms of Sophia and as revelation of Sophia, and that that is emerging more in society now than in the past. That's something that Chris, for example, said um, in conversation. Um, but, you know, I'm not totally convinced of that. Um, I'm much more, I would say, um, comfortable with the theosophic Sophianic tradition. I think once you start to go outside that current and try to widen it across all of society, maybe it's happening, maybe it isn't. Um, you know, I, I can make an argument either way, but I'm much more comfortable within the Sophianic tradition, within theosophy, and specifically with, the, with as, as you find in the really extraordinary figure of John Portage. Yeah, um, that's what I wanted to ask you to clarify, what you mean by the, the theosophic tradition. Now, you mentioned John Portage, and uh, our, our, some of our audience might not know about the Philadelphian Society, and, which was a really remarkable moment in, in English mystical history, if you ask me. Um, and they were, they were uh, big readers of Yaka Burma, right? So, so would you lo locate the beginning of this theosophical tradition at, with Burma? Well, with Burma himself, who, who died in 1624, uh, you have this really astounding figure who uh, spontane essentially spontaneously uh, manifested the, all of these treatises one after another against, you know, really kind of over the protestations of his uh, Lutheran minister who, uh, you know, really tried to prevent him from writing about the uh, mystical under understanding that he, the revelations that he had. Much of Burma's work is, uh, for anyone who has delved into it, challenging. Um, it's a synthesis of many different streams into master works. Uh, so he includes mysticism, but then also alchemy and astrology and all of these different uh, currents into his master works. And very few of his treatises are immediately accessible, I would say. There are some, um, but not very many. Mm -hmm. And he had successors. Now, he, he died in 1624. Uh, by the middle of the 17th century, you had these, the uh, uh, circle, uh, these folks in, in England picking this up uh, and really plugging into that current. And so central to that group was John Portage. And John Portage uh, wrote a number of really massive works, which uh, include Sophia. Uh, uh, also, there are some new translations of his, the rest of his work coming out uh, in succession. Uh, the Metaphysica, which is his masterwork, 
the the true uh, and divine metaphysics, uh, which is a multi-volume, just mass like a thousand pages. That's already translated. <laughs> it's already translated. And what makes Portage so remarkable is the clarity of what he had to say. Whereas Burma, you know, it's it's in this figurative kind of Baroque language. With Portage, it's just straight up, you know. Yeah. Okay. Here's you know here's my experience. Uh, here's here's what happens. You know here's uh, and so it's much clearer. And that's also true of uh, Thomas Bromley, who was in his circle, did a book called Way to the Sabbath of Rest. Uh, very clear. It's very clear. Uh, Jane Lead uh, or Led, not so much. Uh, she's she's a little bit different. She was a successor leader of that group. And went in a different kind of apocalyptic direction that I'm not really, I've never felt that much um, consanguinity with, with her work, actually, uh, for various reasons. So, so anyway, that's, that's the I'm Philadelphia. Sitting here, I'm <laughs> sitting here wondering why I spent hours and months and months pouring over Burma to the best that I could. Oh, I could have read John Portage a little bit, at least to start, right? <laughs> well, if you could find it, that's the thing. It's okay. impossible to... There is Until, a little uh, book in the Paulist Press series, Classics of Western Spirituality, that I think took out the the most easily comprehensible of Burma's works in a good introduction. Yeah. And so then, of course, I was hooked, right? Then I start going through these other things, and it's it's like treading through the thickest mud in the swamp. <laughs> well, it is, and it's I and, and uh and I, it's such a, such a a blessing that so you're saying that's the book to start with michael in your opinion well this Sophia? this is this is the i think it's the only one right now that's available on a regular okay. basis huh. that arthur was involved with putting out you know, what year was this 2018 2018 by grillstone press sophia wow. by john portage and arthur wrote a wonderful introduction to it um yeah, in Burma, I mean, the first time I tried to read Burma, I was probably 23 or something. I'm just, I must be stupid because I don't understand anything I just read. Yeah. And it wasn't until years later where, where I, and I write about this in the submerged reality, I kind of got it how to read Burma. You have to read him, I called it holo, holographically, with, which you have, have to kind of suspend linear thinking and logic. And you just, it's like learning a different language, right? You, you did, yeah. all of a sudden the you get it you know it's still challenging but all of a sudden ah now i and, and you know who was very similar to that is rudolf steiner it was very similar really hard to penetrate and on till you reach the saturation point <laughs> and then, oh i get it now yeah um so 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 that's great arthur um this tradition and you've done a lot more with german pietism than i have in fact i avoided it because i i looked at it as, as your your turf um and they were also deeply inspired by Burma, right? There was su such a current. I mean, he's, I, I always think of Burma as the mystical version of Heidegger, because after him, everything's different. You know, he, he's the fountainhead of, of Protestant mysticism. I mean, it's because it's very different from Catholic mysticism of the time and anything since, right? And very connected to what we could call um, John Milbank and Adrian Pabst have both, both called it this uh, alternative modernity that both Arthur and I have been tracing in our work, right? When people say, people act as if it stopped. Well, it never stopped. It's this alternate stream that's going alongside materialism, you know? So there is, the, the, and people might call it esoteric Christianity, which even that term I'm not necessarily comfortable with because it seems to me that what what these mystics were capturing was something genuine and authentic you know and uh and you know <laughs> like luther he wanted people to read the bible and then burma starts reading the bible and the his pastor's like well not like that <laughs> right, right right so but so it's kind of unleashed this wonder and it was it was kind of short-lived in a way um uh I mean, but though, you know, like William Blake, one of our heroes on this podcast, he's definitely uh, uh, an English Protestant mystic in that tradition, right? Um, and, and so many others as well. I mean, I think you can see it in romantic, German romanticism and English. Um, but here, what I was wanted to talk to Arthur about, because I think this also, uh, as, as we mentioned earlier, you kind of get with this sociological intuition, not only the, the awareness of the divine Sophia, as as a spiritual being but you get likewise get uh 
the percept you you come to the perception not everybody does but many do of the divine sophia as shining through nature right which is you know we, we can talk about paganism or or nature mysticism things like that but there's this other part of it uh, which i'd like to talk to arthur about just see what he thinks is it's also that that protestant mystical tradition is also intimately related to radical religion in the 17th century, figures like uh, Gerard Wim, the diggers, the level, levelers, the fifth monarchists, and, and all these kind of radical Protestant groups, many of which were rejecting, uh, we could call it modernity or early modernity, you know, the technological and the scientific revolution and, and the dehumanizing, despiritualizing currents that come with that. So I wonder if you could say something about that if that's ever come on thought process it has to to some degree um you know it's not really an area that i've i've read around in uh some of the different um there are some prophetic or people who claimed prophetic uh kind of status during that time or there's you know there's um uh very radical forms of immediate you know kind of an immediate sort of spirituality that emerges during that time. And those are, you know, there was this kind of broader set of phenomena happening in the, during that period. And it's hard to, to characterize it as all the same because each of these different individuals has, has his or her own kind of distinctiveness. And some of them are just straight up, you know, um, <laughs> Well, uh-huh. yeah, uh, you could say, or maybe uh, what's that term, crazy wisdom, or I don't know what you want to call it, but uh, there's definitely uh, a range in there. And that's that's true even within the uh, kind of Philadelphian circle where you have, you know, you have uh, Portage, yes, and you have other people whose lives were clearly transformed, but then you also have this kind of prophetic apocalypticism that was being pushed um, at a later point by that group. And, you know, those are not exactly the same things, you know, even within that, those circles. So it's, it's hard to make overgeneral, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but there was definitely, you're absolutely right, there was a broader phenomenon, a set of phenomena happening, especially in England during that time. Uh, you know, and Can I make a comparison, Arthur. Like very. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm sitting uh, just west of the Finger Lakes in Rochester. Well, not too far from Palmyra, New York. You know, the Mormonism. But I'm going to bring up the term the burnt over district. You know, and this notion of uh, this this part of uh, Western New York as being the seed bend for you know Seventh Day Adventism, Mormonism, the Shakers, the Oneida community. Uh, as diverse as that in this area you're talking about, maybe a similar phenomenon, different in difference in other ways, you know, that could bring it home to some in our American audience, you know, because that, that was a unique period uh, confined to a pretty small geographical area. Yeah, that happened a number of times because you can see American Transcendentalism, which was a group of small group of friends in, you know, the Boston area, basically Boston Concord, you know, then the New York kind of burned over district. That's true, too. Uh, mm-hmm. Jocelyn that's, Godwin that's did a book just on that. You know, uh-huh. and those are those are interesting. But what I would say is, with regard to Michael's point, uh, the question I would have, and I think the reason you have this kind of hodgepodge or so much diversity uh, within, you know, within these kind of different radical movements, is that there isn't a shared praxis, a shared kind of map of and goal of territory, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's. You know, one of the reasons that you you end up with all this sort of, uh, you know, wildly different phenomena happening, you know, there isn't a sh- there isn't shared clarity about, you know, what practices and what goals are. I think that's a lot of it, actually. And I, I agree. And I but there does seem to be at varying degrees um, an emphasis on community or on the church, like think about the Portage Circle before before his death. I mean, they, they, they spent, they were constantly in prayer. I mean, they had they, this constant vigil. I mean, they, so they, and it was very ecumenical, right? Um, but, so, but, but that wouldn't have happened, I don't think, 
had it not been for for the government being distracted by the English Civil War, which allowed these people to start practicing some some suspicious versions of Christianity. Interesting. Because yeah. the you know whether it was the Anglicans or the Puritans, they they were too bit preoccupied fighting each other to bother with with, with these, these small groups of people who were who were in, investigating these mystical states and then pr- proclaiming the kingdom. Um, but and I noticed the same thing. I mean, if I look through what I would call the the, the history of sociology and hermeticism, right? There's always this these kinds of uh, outlier groups. You could look at Steiner's early group. You know, it was very you know trying to um, regenerate society after World War One, right? So it was by Steiner comes with all this stuff like Walter biodynamic agriculture and so forth. Because how do we what do we do to regenerate society? Um, so, what, but what I see though is you have that on the one one hand of all these different versions of that, whether it's the diggers having enclosure riots or the Philadelphians meeting in prayer. There's this focus on the small group, but it's often in uh, I wouldn't say in opposition, but the counter to that is a kind of totalitarianism, which you've written about quite a bit. Arthur. So I, w- I wonder what you could say, what would be the relationship to that kind of spiritual impulse to this totalitarian uh, phenomenon that, that we can't seem to shake ourselves away? Well, particularly, you know, it's particularly germane to our present circumstance because we're in a society in which uh, total surveillance is completely feasible, actually. And as a artificial intelligence AI continues to be developed, that then is or can be employed for word sorting, uh, catch certain words. So, I mean, the capacity for surveillance and for totalitarianism now probably is at the highest level ever in human history. And, you know, in this book, The New Inquisitions, I I really was exploring the question of what is the relationship between, you know, how, do, how, how can we understand how a totalizing or totalitarian uh, system works? And how does it come into being? What is it? Uh, and does it have prior or parallel um, forms um, in earlier times? And one example is of of such a system is uh the inquisitions because the inquisitions were an attempt essentially to impose or to enforce uh the exclusion of certain views um really i mean fundamentally that's what it was and uh now of course we're in a very different set of circumstances if i were going to say one thing about the book um, that I would revise, it is this. I did include in the book um, communism and the the left and the totalitarianism of the left, um, but I did not sufficiently emphasize that. Um, and the nature of the nature of the left in terms of how the left works. And I didn't understand that at the time. As clearly as I do now, because of circum, because of history and because yeah. of things that have happened, uh, so I understand much better now. And so I, you know, there are things in that book I would actually have changed. And that uh, that book came out in about two thousand six. Correct. Right? Yeah. And that was in the wake of you know uh, George Bush Jr. and the you know a lot of things that have been happening at that time. Uh, but I should have, in writing the book, I think stepped back. A bit further um, away from the time in which it existed, and uh, you know, perhaps some at some point I'll do a revised edition of it that that does more of what I think it should do. Yeah, because definitely, you know, when I look back, so I've been married thirty years. So when we first got married, as I mentioned before in this podcast, my wife and I were suspicious of vaccines, into homeschooling, into organic food. And people thought we were lefties. 
<laughs> and now if you tell people, oh, you're Republican, huh? <laughs> you're alt-right Republicans. And we're like, what happened? It's like everything around the world just switched 180 <laughs> degrees and we stood still. Because uh, I, yeah, I didn't see that that kind of totalitarian push coming from the left either. Not not to the, you would, back then, the left were the people of free speech, right? Free speech and free expression. And, and it's certainly not the case now. And it hasn't been the case, I would say, since the Obama administration. Well, it, it does hark back to dynamics that you see earlier in Christianity, uh, which is, and that leads to the theme of political religion. Political religion in the sense of... your major theme of your book. Yeah, actually, I, I just finished a book that has a subtitle, Political Religion and Transcendence, hmm. um, which okay. has something in it to drive everyone crazy, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and in the political religion part, you know, you could say that what we are living with now is a kind of secular, a secular religion. It's kind of a, a set of dogmas that have to be acceded to. And, you know, so... Uh, that has that's a secularized form i think there are what happened what has happened for the last several hundred years is the transition to transference of some of the dynamics of christianity uh into secular society but it's not and it's 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 quasi religious the word really should probably be quasi religious you know or pseudo-religious, to mm -hmm. give a Gainanian version, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> but, you know, you, me, you understand uh, so, my oh, point. Ahead. Yeah, yeah. In uh, So I haven't read you. I, I mentioned the book I read, and I've read many things about you. I'd read several back then and recently reviews of the book kind of under discussion now, the new totalitarianism. Totally agree with you, you know, political religion. Uh, another name that's mentioned on this podcast a lot, Ivan Illich, and, you know, somewhat his thought is seen as being associated with Charles Taylor in Canada. You know, this notion of uh, all of modernity being, you know, the kind of transmogrification of the church. But I'd like in reading reviews and correct me if I'm wrong, when a lot of people we read now. So if you said if there's a number of Catholic listeners, oh, they're going to they're going to go with you on the secular religion piece for sure. On the other hand, you know, in, in your book, A Totalitarianism of the Left. But the other thing they want to do is bash on uh, completely and utterly. Gnosticism. But if I'm right in your book, Gnosticism doesn't have such a bad rap. It was the reaction against Gnosticism that was one of the precursors to totalitarianism. Uh, am I right? And if so, can you expound on that a little bit? Well, this this is something, it's funny you mention this because I, I just like your mean... smile, not all the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. All of a sudden well, you started smiling. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's it's just it makes me laugh. You you definitely caught um, or are touching on a theme. I just spent the last year, uh, really more than that, but writing writing a book which uh, addresses some of what we're talking about, and specifically, I include in the book, although I don't focus on it. Uh, it's an aside. But there is a strain of thought which ties into Eric Vogelin, which uh, the political theorist who who conceived of the brilliant stroke of blaming everything bad on Gnosticism in political, you know, political totalitarianism, you know, totalitarianism, Marxism, communism, and everything that he didn't like was Gnostic. And I said in one book that I thought that he late in life had kind of turned a page and he had he had realized no, he didn't realize. He he <laughs> blundered on with that same thesis and you know, just blundered into his death with the same thesis. <laughs> now Isn't that funny. Uh, yes, well, you know, Gnosticism is not the origin of Marxism or communism or all of it. it's it's just you know, it's ridiculous, really, this this kind of trope that keeps getting repeated on the right. Um, however, and this is new, so I will just tell you. Because um, I've got a theory I want to share with you, too. Go. Yeah. Go. Go. You tell me the oh, theory, one, and one I will theory, come back. One theory is, so there's a, there's a historian, <laughs> John John Lukash, right? It's a theme I see a lot now. Yes. Uh, John Lukash. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, he would say, like, and I'm going to paraphrase, communism, bad thing. Anti-communism. Equally crazy or is worse, right? Um, we might say that uh, um, 
so again, in a sense that you could have something that's bad. So fascism, or let's say Trumpism, bad. Anti-Trumpism as a, as a religion is also a pretty scary phenomenon. I'm wondering if we could look at some aspects of Gnosticism. I agree with you. The word out there is just a label they smack on things. But, you know, if there is something to Gnosticism, the way it's defined by Jonas and others, you know, a dualism and this and that, am I crazy to say Gnosticism? Some, or we could distinguish between Gnosticism and Gnosticism. is great. Gnosticism, some of the aspects that are wonderful. Like I love liberty. So I I just think whatever people want to think, I'm interested. Some aspects that might, you know, I might want to debate with. But on the other hand, this anti-Gnosticism thing is crazy. You know, does that make any sense? Well, it all depends on how you what you think Gnosticism is mm-hmm. and how you're define, you know, how you define it, and then uh in what context. So for example, uh the Hans Jonas model. Um, you know, that model does describe something in the 20th century and 21st century, you know, it, it describes something. It's not related very much to actual Gnostic, Gnostic texts (laughs) or to figures, right? It doesn't have much of anything to do with Valentinus or any, you know, the gospel of Thomas it's, but it's real in the sense that you find people and here. I can give you many examples of people using the term demiurge, archons, hostile com- cosmos, all of the Jonasian kind of created, you know, um, uh, determinants of what Gnosticism is today. They're out there. They're all yeah. over the place. They're a modern phenomenon. It is not in antiquity so much. Yeah. It's now. And so that's that's really a key to understanding this. And once you start going down this road, which I have I've gone quite far now, and I that have like quite it, a bit yeah. in, yeah, and I have quite a bit in this book uh-huh. that people are not going to know how to. People will not know how to process this. I will guarantee it. The best I can hope for is they say, okay, it's documented. I don't know, you know, because. <laughs> Because that's the best I can hope for, because it is a counter narrative to all kinds of things. And once you get down this road and you really process it, your whole worldview either changes or you have to bracket it and and just kind of never look at it again. <laughs> right. You know, that's well, you know, as I was getting my book, Sophia in Exile together, one of the chapter at the beginning is based on the, the Hymn of the Pearl. And uh, because I had what then? Where I did you see the film? What's it called? Knight of Cups by Terrence Malick. I have. Which no. is the the narrative structure? Actually, the the scaffolding for that film is the Hymn of the Pearl. And at that fact, one of the voiceovers actually reads from the Hymn of the Pearl a few times. It's kind of beautiful. Um, so maybe cool. thinking I had read that years and years before, and I started thinking about it. So I I pulled out my Gospel of Saint Thomas and read the Hymn of the Pearl again, and. I was teaching a like a beginning philosophy at the time. I said, I gotta make the kids read this because it perfectly describes the, their their reality as college students, right? They're sent into Egypt and they forget why they came, right? Right. And so it was it was great having a conversation. But then I, then right after that, I, I was sent a manuscript from Angelico Press to review. It was actually David Bentley Hart's book Kino Gaia, which just came out, which the subtitle is A Gnostic Tale. And I when, it, when so it's a brilliant book. It's actually written, I think, for kids, for like preteen, like teenagers, because it reminds me of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and their fantasy, you know. And I, when I was reading, I was said, my thirteen-year-old son would eat this up. Um, but but it's funny because I I was telling I told David I said you might want to take out a Gnostic tale from the subtitle because I think I might scare off some some potential buyers. <laughs> but he but he he's David Hart, David Hart he's not going to take it off. But uh and he was proud. Well, it would attract right. me. So <laughs> that's the thing. It would attract you. I turn off some homeschool parents who are in the bunker, right? But it's it's a, it's brilliant and and I think. Um, this is an important thing to think about. I mean, talk about describing our current moment. And this is, uh, as, as you know, something Philip K. Dick was, was uh, excavating 40 years ago. You know, his, his, 
Gnosticism, when he discovered Gnosticism, he had a way to understand the world and how so much of we see what we see is is a fake world. And the task is to find the real world, right? Find our way back to the real. So, and of course, for the longest time, most of what we knew about the Gnostics came from their detractor, right? From Irenaeus and Hippolytus, who's, who's a ill-tempered little little cuss. <laughs> but uh, but I think it's important. I think it, and I myself, I can't but appreciate how accurately these some of these Gnostic myths describe our current circumstance, and and that's why I call the people running things the Archon. Is that yes, they are. You right. are not alone. Yeah. This is the thing. Um, and that's why once you, you know, once you start down this road and you really just in an, you know, in an objective way, you just start to explore and you keep going. What you find is uh, really interesting. And one of the things this is, this is a book that will come out from Oxford University Press next year called American Gnosis. And, you know, there are a lot of you're absolutely right, Michael. There are a lot of things in uh, contemporary society that the kind of uh, uh, mytholo the, the mythological structure, archons, uh, artificially created, you know, by a demiurge, mm -hmm. uh, hostility, not of the cosmos as a whole, but of the social media and the system as a whole, the systemic yeah. hostility uh, to really to... Um, meaning to you know traditionally understood truth the hostility to the idea of uh any kind of hierarchy um any kind of merit um all of these things there's deep hostility to all of these things and so what describes that what helps us to understand it it is gnosticism i actually call this neo-gnosticism in the book yeah, yeah. and I, I struggled with terms i mean i didn't yeah i had i had a devil of a time with terms because <laughs> because you know um you can't really call it it's not so much traditional gnosticism it's a new phenomenon with gnostic terminology to describe where we are now yeah and and that's the thing it's like like with burma you have to find a new vocabulary yes right? and so you borrow from what you can borrow from right because there are there are not well, like i probably one of the more valuable terms that's been coined is the technocracy sure right that's a valuable term archons i like better but but it's it, we, <laughs> we're, we're talking about the same phenomenon right um so and this is i you know i this has been a preoccupation of mine as well i mean in my book uh, um, which one? Transfiguration. I have a chapter on Sophia and Araman, right? What? Do, which one are you going to choose? Where, where are you going to go with, with the Sophianic or the Aramanic? Um, and that's the. And that seemed at that time. So that was 2018. I, that seemed like the. Or I was writing it in 2017. That was the choice I felt we were we were being confronted with. I didn't realize it would happen so quickly. And I think we see now we're we're in the in a bizarre end game of the archon trying to 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 finish the job before the, the the gig is up right uh as we see i think you see it right now with the and i think it's perfectly illustrated with the dutch farmers versus the government i mean that's a sophianic it's sophia versus Armand right mm -hmm. there at least symbolically you know I, even more than the, than the than the canadian truckers um which was you know but it's inspired i mean it reminds me like I, i've said before it reminds me of the rebellions of the diggers and the other people who were rebelling against enclosure laws. And in a way, we're rebelling against the enclosure of the human person right now, you know, the enclosure of freedom. Will all this go down all before true. Arthur's all book true. is published? Yeah, yeah, it is all true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the, uh, Stephen Huller wrote a book um, uh, on the alchemy of freedom. Yep, and that. he, you know, he, of course, he came, came as a, a political refugee. He had seen communism firsthand uh, in Eastern Europe, he, in Central Europe. He had come to the United States as a refugee, and he recognized what freedom means. He recognized that it is a spirit. There's a spiritual dimension to freedom in the United States that is absolutely vital. And he wrote a book about that, which I recommend to people just to to read if you haven't seen it. I read What's it, it called in. Called again, Arthur. Uh, freedom. I believe it's called Freedom Alchemy 
of society. I have to. I'd have to get the exact title. And Stephen but it's Holler a book on H O E L L E R. H O E L L E R. That's correct. Yeah, he's now he's the founder of the Gnostic Church in California. He is. He's you know he's a pretty remarkable figure. I I hadn't paid as much attention to him until I was doing this book, and then I thought, oh, I got to have Stephen Huller. And so then I went in there and started reading, you know, reading the things I had not read of him and, you know, by him. And, you know, the more I read, I thought, wow, you know, he's, yeah, he's brilliant. He, he really is. has. Yeah, he's really good. And he has he captured in that book from, I don't know, more than 20, probably 30 years ago. Yeah. It was quite early. Um, I think it was in the 90s. Yeah. He, you know, he captures in that book things that are very salient to our current circumstances and that you were just talking about michael and i so i i mentioned that um you know just just in passing yeah um and he's also young young an analyst right i mean he's and he's a remarkable I mean, did you ever meet him no i met him he gave he's still alive he is he's about yes. 90 but yeah. he's he's still kicking let's get uh, him on the I, show before he croaks that would be nice <laughs> and he's very funny, very personable, but, you know, and he, he, when I, did I have dinner with him? I may have had dinner with him. He w- was telling me uh, about growing up. Well, he had, he had been a Catholic seminarian prior to the war. And then as, as uh, Arthur was saying, then he was displaced and then we had to rethink things. And that's when he, we're at the t- same time he got interested in Jung, which drew him to Gnosticism. A very personable human being, really charming and, and, and highly, highly intelligent, highly intelligent. Right. Very good man. So, yeah. So, <laughs> so welcome to the Gnostic podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I, I liked those. We're changing I gotta the read. name. I have to read the new totalitarianism because this, uh, I don't know if I've met anybody until you, Arthur, and those reviews, and I'd read some years ago, but who who would just put out there so clearly that, you know, yeah, I liked when you were talking about Hans Jonas. Yeah, this is a thing. He's describing something, but it's oh, yeah. not Gnosticism, you know? And um, so well, I, and I only can only imagine this next book is going to be reviewed you know I, Jonas, it, yeah. I'm, I'm not joking this sounds seminal at this moment so yeah. uh and Jonas also right he's a guy who lived through world war ii and the nazis sure. right yeah. so he knows what it looks like yeah up close so um what time we got okay let me ask him just quickly <clears throat> is it from is it from jonas that like some of us you know i went to uh i just took an ma in catholic theology but where do we get this almost checklist it's in my head of you know a dualism between mind and matter you know rule by the elites um spirit and flesh uh things like that is that jonas or, or did vogelin kind of consolidate that in the in the catholic mind michael i don't know oh okay <laughs> i don't know does that sound familiar but to you if you no, didn't the, give a litany michael ideas. those ideas yeah. are out there yeah, yeah those okay. ideas are out there we were just told that that's gnosticism and that's the enemy you know, and that all di- ideology subscribes well, it is. to this. I mean, it's called Gnosticism. It's great. That's not it's Gnosticism. Easy... Yeah. That's the enemy that Gnosticism describes. Yeah. Right. It's That's not what Gnosticism Yeah, this is. starts to get really tricky. As Arthur was saying, you keep on digging well, into it and, and you, the, you know, stay objective. And I think even Arthur starts Theosophia with a, with a discussion of what Gnosis, right? And Well, one of the things that, you know, I... I I wish we had a little more time because I, you know, there are, there are things we could explore, especially with regard to the future and what, uh, because I think really, we can say, go there, Arthur, go there now, even there are things, there are things to reflect on in terms, not so much of the present. There are aspects of the present that actually look fairly bleak. Um, but really, that's just the revelation of how things are. That's what a, that's why we call that book Apocalyptic Times, uh, because apocalypse literally is revelation. It's revealing how, how things actually are, and that's what's been happening. Uh, um, so you see much more clearly things, if, if I suppose you have eyes to see. If not, you just don't see it. Um, but it's out there if you want to see what i'm interested in and i wonder what michael would have to say about the uh you know seeding the future because biodynamic agriculture growing uh community farms community building community uh, what role does you know mysticism play in that in mystical practice in in sort of seeding seeding a healthy future yeah and that's where i was really, where i was going to to ask you next so 
Well, I was, I was. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, and this, I think uh, when Arthur emailed me back, he said, well, why don't we talk about paganism? Because um, for me, what I, you know, seems like the only, well, the, the obvious alternative to the technocracy or to the rule of the archon is exactly what you just described there. But how do we bring mysticism into that? Right. And that it's for me, in a way, it, it's uh, it's kind of nature mysticism as, as well as like a, a religious or Christian mysticism or whatever you want to call it. Um, from, I've always said that uh, in a way, Robert Herrick is emblematic of that to me because it's not a perfect society that he describes in, in Hesperides. It's a messy society, but it's one society and it's it's related to both the spiritual world and the spiritual part of the physical world or the material world and the celebration of the festivals or May Day and Lama's Tide and whatever it happens to be. So I think from when it, the way I've been thinking about it for a number of years is one of the thing is, is to, and I wouldn't say return, but I would say go forward to and understand. And I think we see this in neo-paganism, you know, the, the neo-pagans, would probably love to be Christians, but they can't stand with the culture. You know, they 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 feel it disconnected from the the world, from creation. And but that's and as we know, if you go to medieval Christianity, Renaissance, even late into the nineteenth century, Christianity was still connected to the to, to the wheel of the year, and it's become increasingly increasingly disenfranchised from it. So. And I, and I wouldn't call it re-enchantment or anything because, you know, I, I'm of the stream that has never stopped being enchanted in the first place, you know? So, but it's, maybe it's, it's a, it's a task of, you know, I don't know, somehow making that available to people in, in a, in a, making it okay, making it okay. I don't know. What do you think, Arthur? Well, there's uh, different aspects to that. I think there's a tradition, a European tradition, Western European in particular, although it's more broadly Eurasian, um, uh, of or Indo-European, depending on what, what term you want to use, um, of uh, what I would refer to as earth mysteries. And earth mysteries involve all kinds of things that are just excluded from the contemporary radar. It's just excluded, like 100% excluded, right? You don't even hear about... Uh, you don't even hear about it. it. Doesn't. There's like no mention of any of it at all. Um, and that's give some what examples, I, Arthur. Oh, I can give plenty of examples. So, on yeah, a yeah, yeah. very very simple level, uh, spirits of the home, spirits around the home, the the idea of lares, the mm -hmm. you know the uh, genius Loki, the the spirits of the place. The yeah. uh, this is a Roman. This idea the Romans had. They didn't come up with it. Uh, but they honored it. Uh, that's just, or, you know, the, the kind of Northern European tradition of leaving, you know, you leave a bowl of milk, um, you know, or, you know, and you still see this in the Santa Claus kind of, um, yeah. you know, leave a bowl of milk and cookies for Santa Claus. Well, it wasn't actually Santa Claus uh, so much. It was, it was a, a coming to terms with the non-physical dimensions of the world around us. And the non-physical dimensions are not necessarily spiritual only. They're all, they're, there's a whole array of different things here. C.S. Lewis understood that very well uh, because he was a medievalist, of course, exactly yep. as Michael said, he understood it. And you see that in that hidden strength and in the space trilogy where he just, he just puts it out there. You know, it's, it's, it's very clear that he, his Christianity includes pagan mysteries. And it's not that he included everything that I'm alluding to, because there's much more and we could go, you know, for an hour or two just on some things that I'm only gesturing at right now. But, but essentially, I think you're absolutely right that there's a synergy between these different dimensions of folk traditions yeah. and Christianity that, you know, it's not a matter of, of, you know, going backward or something. It's that in the world we're going to live in down the road, it's going to be important to come to terms with how things actually are. And our society has been telling itself materialist, physicalist, physicalist stories for a long time. So we've forgotten a lot of things. And what I'm interested in is remembering, 
Yeah. So that's kind of what we're well, talking about. Earth mysteries. That's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah let let that's me a... make one connection too to another theme. And I think you guys, basically on how you're telling the story of the left too and the right, Arthur, we've had a guest on who's a friend of ours twice. His name is Guido Preparata to teach at the Gregorian backgrounds in criminology and stuff. But I, I see that you guys would be simpatico. But mm-hmm. um, when we talk about, you know, where do we go from here? His central concern is, and we talk about like the made versus the real um, and all these things. His central concern, which he says was, you know, once with kind of a nod to Rolf Steiner, but Silvio Gestell and then Steiner. But the, the key term for him is perishable currency, right? That the emblematic thing may be at the center of it for him. And I, I tend to be of the school myself is the notion that when we talk about the real, you know, that usurious currency is unnatural. That's the first thing people say about it. It grows at rates, exponential function, rates faster than cancer, rates faster than any tree rings. But perishable currency is based upon the insight of Gesell and also Rudolf Steiner. Uh, He talked about his threefold social order, but perishable currency is based on the fact that money has to represent those things, right? It has to mirror what it represents, in other words, that a, a basket of even houses, things that people say, again, other than a few precious metals, everything deteriorate, you know, at a certain rate that economists can kind of calculate. But, um, you know, I just, some some of our listeners have heard Guido twice kind of making this case. And I think there are strong connections about the subject matter we're talking to. And I just got to put it out there. I think you and Guido would be like soulmates on a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. It's really- you would love his book called The Ideology of Tyranny. It's on Gnosticism, the left, uh, political correctness, the you know, <laughs> political religions. It's great. Great. Oh, I'll take I'll take a look. I haven't read it. Sounds great. You've come to the yeah. right place. So, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, and this is something I've been writing about, right? How can we reorient ourselves to the real? How can we find our way back to you know, it's which which is that I mean to to go back to our theme, that's the hymn of the pearl. That's realizing why you were sent here and what your task is. It's to relate to the real and not to, right? And one of the great parts about the hymn, The Pearl, it's such a beautiful fairy tale that uh, the boys told, don't eat their food. <laughs> if you eat their food, you'll forget who you are, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think GMO food. And then how he remembers who he is, is his father writes him a letter from heaven and sends him a letter reminding him of his task. But when, when the letter comes, it comes in the form of a bird. And then the way the, the hymn puts it, and then it turned into pure language. You know, the, so it's kind of a beautiful I once had an experience story. I want to share based on that, that letter thing. Because I'm sitting above, I sit in an office uh, above a campus where I went to college as a freshman in 1986. And my second day of college was a Saturday. We played some tag football. But somehow something happened, and I just got my bell rung. It wasn't even tackle football like I played every time as a kid. We would have considered tag football uh, crazy. <clears throat> but uh, I had I'd gotten my bell rung, and I, I told the guys, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I went up to my dorm, and then they found me like an hour later, and I didn't know who they were or anything. But during that time, I do remember this. I'd kind of lost my memory. You know, it was concussed in some way. But it was my birthday, and um, I had a birthday card. And it was from my sister. And I remember, it's just so funny. I just remember like it was yesterday looking at a birthday card and thinking, birthday cards are the most beautiful thing in the world. I don't know what they are. <laughs> the sentiment even in the card. And then the idea of a sister, you know, the idea that her name was Jan, all this stuff just lifted from the page. And your anecdote, Michael, about the hymn of the pearl, you know, there, there's deep poetry in this. Well, it's to be reminded of who we are. Yeah. 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 And it's because it's- you And know, the joy of being alive too. That's what I felt. <laughs> and the technology- Everything is interesting. And it's the and the technocracy doesn't want you to know who you are. Absolutely. Or what the real is. That's that's part that's how the magic works. That's so interesting. You know, that that is very, very uh close to the argument in this book that is coming out. It's basically very similar. Um uh, so beautifully said, Michael. <laughs> when when do you see it coming out exactly, Arthur? Not sure. I'm not sure. We'll see. Okay. Uh sometime next yeah. year. You never know with these people. Yeah, um, that's true. See, I don't so. know enough about it, but yeah, couldn't be fast <laughs> yeah. enough as far as I'm concerned. Okay, well, so we probably should wrap it up about okay. now. Um, Arthur, tell us uh, where we can people can get a hold of you or reach out to you or check into your work. Well, the um, primary place is actually uh, Hyros Institute. Hyros is a nonprofit devoted to the sacred that that uh, 
you know, I've been engaged in with a few friends for a little while and, um, you know, in a, I would say, desultory fashion because uh, then I have to go out and hoe, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, things of that of that type. Yeah. Um, and so it's always a kind of balancing act between, you know, things that need to be done with regard to, you know, uh, gardening and farming and various things uh, and uh, doing videos and podcasts and those kinds of things. But we do periodically, we do periodically refresh, you know, some things that are on there. So that, and that's a good place. Um, and if people want to email me, they could email me. Um, I'm at the university, so it's versluce at MSU, uh, you know, and that's that. Okay. Well, great. And everybody will get well, the spelling of your name uh, on the title to this podcast. And Sounds good. Okay. Well, thank you, guys. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Arthur. Yeah, we'll see pleasure. everybody next week. Uh, we'll see them here. Uh, same bat time, same bat channel at the Regeneration Podcast. Take it easy. Take care.